0: So uh, let me let me just jump in. We'll get we'll get going. Um, I'll pray and we'll jump into this week uh, and see what we want to uh, what we need to focus on. Uh, Father, we just thank you that we do have the opportunity to still uh, be together. Uh, we know that we're not checking every box uh, for what it means to be the church and gather as the church this morning, but we do. Um, Uh, We are privileged to be able to use this, be creative, uh, use technology to actually connect and still gather in some way, shape, or form. And so we just pray that this morning would be encouraging, that it would be um, a a time for us to, again, Jesus, have our eyes just lifted to you to be focused on you. And uh, this morning, as we look and and continue to just look through how we can be using this very strange season right now uh, to, to prepare and to practice what you want us to practice, I just pray that you would speak and you would move and you'd use this time to really make much of yourself in and through us. And we ask these things in Christ's name, Um, amen. So let me just make sure I'm set up here. Awesome. So if um, you weren't able to join us last week, uh, we started a new series and we kind of pivoted uh, with the change of the plans. And we pivoted to do a new series called Recalculating, looking at when plans change. And what we wanted to do is we want to just kind of lay out what it could look like for us not to just see the next month as a throwaway, not to just see it as a time that was like, ah, oh, another one of these and just throw kind of the next season and the next month away as something that we can't be doing productive things and actually practicing the right things. And so one of the things we really tried to hit last week is the reality that practice is preparation. So when we look at our life and the habits that form our daily life and our weekly life, we have to understand that practices, the practices and rhythms that shape us daily, is preparation for what is to come. And so what we want to do is over this next month is we want to practice well. And we want to practice well individually, but specifically practice as much as we can corporately so that we're ready for the next season of our life and mission as a church. And so we started to look at some of the practices and rhythms. Um, of what we actually can be focusing on. And this week, we're gonna start looking at some of the specifics. We're gonna start looking at some of the specific things that we actually can practice, some of the rhythms and habits that we can lean into and really become. Look at what is, what is God wanting the church to become in this season as we move forward. And one thing that I think just pastoring you and hearing from you and, and just being a sound board for you as we've walked through this season. One thing that I've seen and one thing I've internalized and felt, of course, is that we all feel this sense of uncertainty and angst, that we're all feeling kind of somewhere on a spectrum of, of just anxious and angsty and frustrated and uneasy and restless, and what, it, what it ends up happening is that over the next month, we could actually be dragged into kind of a, just a season of distraction, a season of entertainment, a season of consuming, a, a season of, of just numbness and an overall kind of funk that just kind of keeps us stuck and not use this season. And so today we want to start with the question of how can we actually respond in the midst of feeling restless with all that's going on right now? So let's jump in and take a look at what Jesus says in Matthew 11, uh, verse 28 through 30. And it's actually gonna be up on the screen for you. We're gonna screen share the scripture for you. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. Come to me, it's an invitation. All who labor and are heavy laden, all of you who are tired and, and just carrying burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and meek or gentle and lowly in heart. And when you do that, you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now I wanna show you a different translation, something that's a little bit more poetic that Eugene Peterson does in the message. And he says it this way, are you tired? Are you worn out? I think many of us can be like, um, yes, right? Are you burnt out on religion? just performance, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace because I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, Jesus says, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Simply put, when we look at these verses, it's Jesus's invitation to turn from all other objects that offer us rest and instead rest in him. That's the invitation here. And notice what he gets at. He gets that soul rest. Now to get a little geeky for a second, when we talk about soul, uh, there's a new Disney movie called Soul. We often jump to like kind of that immaterial, transcendental thing about us, that spiritual part that's not material. But in the Hebrew Bible, the the word nephesh, say nephesh. You sound great, yeah. Uh, Naphesh in the Hebrew and the Old Testament, the soul is not just kind of an immaterial part of us, but it's actually the holistic seat of mind, of intellect, of will, of being. It's, it's the whole person. And so when Jesus is saying, come to me, and, 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 like take the invitation to come to me and it's I who will give you rest for your soul, he's not just talking about rest for our mind. He's not just talking about rest for the restlessness that we feel emotionally. He's not just talking about rest for our body. Again, ultimately, those things can happen with a vacation. Those things can happen with a good night's sleep. Those things can happen with a glass of red wine, right? Jesus is offering us something more than that. It's rest for our nephesh. It's it's rest for the very deep center of who we are as a person. That's the kind of rest that Jesus is inviting us into. And I've seen an interesting study recently in the UK where they they actually came out the other end of this study looking at sleep and rest. And they, they showed that children, like kids, actually need to learn how to rest in the same way that they learn to walk, to, to run, to talk, to play, all of the normal routines. So parents on the, on the, in the room, like sleep routines, how important are sleep routines for our kids so that they actually sleep? Right? If those sleep routines are destroyed, our kids are not sleeping, we're not sleeping, and then you need more coffee. That's the reality. And so this study came out to show that actually children need to learn how to rest because rest requires intentionality and practice. And I think that's kind of counterintuitive. We just think like relaxation is rest. So I'm just gonna relax more or binging and watching my, catching up on my new favorite series. It's like, ah, restful. But that's not the kind of rest that Jesus is talking about. And actually today, I think in our digital age, in our consumeristic age, in our entertainment obsessed age, it actually is becoming harder and harder to truly rest. With constant digital distractions, with constant pings and dings and notifications coming at you, with constant cries that you're missing out, right? The fear of missing out on some entertainment or some new series or some new show, it's constantly coming at us. And it's leaving us in a state of restlessness. And worse than that, it's actually diminishing our ability to be fully present, to focus deeply and to think critically. And all of those things are so vital for what it means to truly rest. And some of us, and if I'm honest, I'm often trading relaxation for true rest. It's very easy in this season, church, to fill the vacuum that we feel with entertainment and scrolling and consuming. Something that would just promise a little bit of control over the things that are out of our control. It's very, very tempting. And and this is not just true of rest. And as a church, uh, if you haven't been around, as a church we've been walking through this the last couple of years, kind of on a journey of like, we need more than just the message about Jesus. We actually need to practice the way of Jesus. And so that's not just true of rest that it requires practice, but it's true of all spiritual disciplines. Of, of all spiritual practices, because those are what shape who we are. And one day at a time, the habits that make up our day end up shaping and forming the habits that make up our life. Uh, Dallas Willard, great writer on spiritual disciplines and formation said that we cannot behave on the spot like Jesus if in the rest of our time we live like everybody else. And then he goes on to say about this passage, The secret of the easy yoke that Jesus is talking about is to learn from Christ how to live out our total life and how to invest our time and our energies of mind and body just like he did. So we actually need to take Jesus up on this invitation and and learn from him and then go and live like him, empowered by his spirit, as we go and practice rhythms that allow us to experience what the gospel proclaims, right? You with me on that? That is the point of the next month for us is to say, like, let's not just make this a throwaway month. Let's not just roll our eyes and and sit in angst and frustration. Let's, Let's use the time. Let's redeem the time, Ephesians says, that we have, even if nothing is ideal. And when I think of Jesus, I thought about Jesus a lot this week, which is a good thing to hear from your pastor. It's like, that's good. I'm glad that you thought about Jesus a lot because that's what we need. But I thought about Jesus a lot this week. And and the question that kind of popped up is how I would not think, if if you were to just ask me, describe Jesus, I would come up with, hey, I come up with good words. Some of them would be big words, right? Some of them would be good theological words. But one thing I wouldn't necessarily find coming out of my mouth very quickly is thinking of Jesus as well-rested. Like, do you think of Jesus as well-rested? Like, and you know those people, maybe you are those people, but, but those people who are well-rested, like, they're just great to be around. Like, there's just something about them. They're just, they're centered. They're, they're just kind of like in a good place. And it's like, when I'm around them, I'm a better person. I think Jesus was the most well-rested human being to ever walk the face of the earth. And if he offers true rest, then he would have had to be. You with me on that? Like he would have had to be the most well-rested person in order to actually invite us boldly to say, do you want rest? Well, it's in me. Come with me. I can show you, and only, only I can show you what it means to actually rest. So this is the invitation we wanna to respond to this morning. And notice what he says. Come. It's an invitation. You can You cannot, you can go, but, but the, the, the invitation is to come, come to him. You can go to other things. You can go to other objects that, that promise you rest and promise you affirmation and promise you value and promise to tell you who you are. You can do that. You can go and do all those things. But this invitation is open to anyone and everyone that would actually come, that would actually respond to the invitation to say, those other objects of rest, all of those other things, they fail me. They fail me, they don't give me life. They don't give me rest, deep, in the pit of my soul. And that's the Jesus, Jesus's invitation in this. And then he kind of throws it a bit paradoxical. And he says, come to me. And you're like, okay, what are you going to give me? A blanket? That's, yeah, mm, right? Like you're just like, come and then I will give you a, a weighted blanket. That's what I'll give you, right? That's what you're expecting. I don't think in his context, they had those quite yet. Uh, because only millennials would have weighted blankets, amen? Um, but here's, here's what he says. Come and then take on my yoke, okay? Right away, you're like, wait, hold on, but not, not egg yolk, right? So a yoke is a, a farming tool, and it was this big, heavy crossbar that you'd put on in between two ox, and they would drag farming equipment. So right away, you're kind of like, you want rest? Come to me so that we can work? You're like, well, I don't, What? Right? So there's a little bit bit of a paradox there, but you got to understand like that doesn't sound restful. It actually sounds like work. It sounds like a process. It's like, but I just want to rest. I don't really want to process towards rest, but here's what Jesus is doing here. And it's amazing. Jesus does not avoid the just true reality, the undeniable reality that life is hard. (laughs) Like that life is work. That life is full of tension that life is full of conflict that life is full of brokenness inside and outside of us. Jesus doesn't avoid it. He meets it head on and then instead of offer us an escape, he offers us a way. He doesn't just come and offer us entertainment and distractions as an escape from the reality that life is hard. He instead enters into that and offers us a way. And church listen, all the all the culture All culture, all the world can offer you and I is a temporary distraction from what is true. A temporary distraction and entertainment and decadence as an escape from reality that things are hard sometimes. That there's a real tension. And that if we don't sit in the pain and hurt and brokenness that is true, we will not even know we need rescuing. We won't even know we need a savior. So Jesus doesn't avoid it. Jesus doesn't come at us like Buddhism and say there isn't any suffering, that suffering is an illusion. He comes at us and says, no, it's real. It's real, but I'm here to offer a way. And in this verse, you can just hear it reverberating out of Jesus saying an easy life is not an option. It's a lie. An easy life is not an option, but an easy yoke is if you come to me. If you come to me. And brothers and sisters, this week, I found myself so in such desperate need of, of going to Jesus to take on his yoke, knowing that I needed to be carried along. And that's the beautiful part of this invitation. He says, take my yoke, not as another burden to add to your others, but instead take your eyes off of the burdens that weigh you down. Take my yoke on because I'm the one that's gonna carry you along. it's it's easy, it's it's not heavy because he's carrying the load. That's the image here. That's the Jesus that we see here. That's the Jesus that we see working his life and and his ministry out into the reality of the gospel that he would enter into sin, he would enter into pain, that he'd enter into suffering and that he alone would conquer. The only thing that can silence life, death itself and then promise us that we have that in him if we come to him. That is what we need to hear. And he doesn't just give us a way. He gives us himself. And notice what he says about himself. Now, this is really important because sometimes when we're honest, we just really are looking for a way. Just kind of like, well, God, I don't really need you per se. I just kind of want your way. Like, give me a way out of this. And then I'll just kind of like hashtag blessed. I'll throw up some whatevers. uh, And then you just kind of like keep... Praises go up, blessings come down. That's, that's what I want. I just want a transactional relationship with the God who blesses. That's what I want, right? And Jesus turns the corner and he says, I am gentle. I am meek, right? I am gentle and lowly. I am gentle and, and meek. Now, anytime Jesus says, I am, you have to understand that that is like Jesus for, I'm God, right? Um, so in the Old Testament, you don't say I am because that is the unmentionable name of the one true God. Every time Jesus says I am and then follows it with something, he's going, so I'm God and let me tell you what God is like. So do you wanna know who God is? Jesus is gonna tell you because he's God. That, that's, that's what he's doing here. And so he comes up and he says, you wanna know what God is like? He's not like your sugar daddy who you just throw praises up and blessings come down. He's not wagging his finger at you waiting just to, to throw the hammer down on you every time you fail. Jesus shows up and says, God is gentle and lowly, in heart, and that's the key. This is not just how God acts. It's not just something he does every once in a while. It's not just a behavior of his. This is actually who God is because it's in heart that flows out his gentleness and his lowliness and his meekness and his love because our heart always points to this kind of central like command center of who we are in our identity. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Now meekness, when we talk about meekness and gentleness, like those get a bad rap um, today, right? Like meekness is not something that you're gonna see posted in like 2021, uh, New Year's resolutions. This is my year, cause I'm gonna be meek, right? Because that sounds like you're a loser. Uh, Meekness is kind of just for, it just seems like you're a pushover. Usually meekness is like, well, you're just a doormat and you're mushy, right? Just kind of squishy and nice or whatever, right? Like you're just just mushy, right? That's what, what you think of when you think about meekness. That is not Jesus. That is not the God of history. That is not the God of the gospel at all. But the meekness and the gentleness that we see in the Greek, the word is actually considerate, humble, And it's often contrasted in the same sentence with harshness, with with being insensitive, with being abrasive, with being combative. That's not meekness. And our culture is full of that, definitely not full of meekness. And this is not a trait that's esteemed by our culture today. Why? Well, because when our highest cultural value church in our Western context is self-empowerment, self-actualization and getting yours and doing you, whatever that means, meekness doesn't help you get there. That, that's not it. Like meekness is not going to contribute to me going out and getting it. And I think we have like this picture today of our culture pushing to the front of the proverbial line of everything, just clamoring for more attention clamoring for more influence and control and power over whatever we think we can just gain control and power over. And then we just brag about who's winning. We see that everywhere in our culture today. And what, what this verse is showing us, Jesus is nothing like that, praise God. <laughs> Jesus is nothing like any of that. Jesus isn't harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not triggered. He's not easily exasperated. Like that's, that's the Jesus. Jesus that is inviting us to come. He's not, he's not just kind of waiting to, to, to throw us away the second we, we we drop the ball, when we do. This is saying that he's patient. He's, he's thoughtful. He's understanding. Uh, like Ephesians 2, 4, he's rich in mercy. Jesus is the well-rested, approachable, welcoming, Willing, no prerequisites needed, other than coming to Him, God. That's who Jesus is. Uh, Dane Ortland, in his book *Gentle and Lowly*, said that Jesus's posture isn't a pointed finger, but it's open arms. If you haven't read that book, get that book. Um, not yet, Ben. That's 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 his posture. He's gentle and lowly. See how distracting this Zoom thing is? I made the, made the mistake of looking at you guys. Um, <laughs> here's, here's the point. Um, Jesus is inviting us to come to him. And he, notice, notice what's interesting here too. Who his posture like this is towards, it's those who come to him. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus is not rich in mercy towards sinners because we are sinners, of course. But just a few verses before this, you can read it this week. A few verses before this, he is rebuking unrepentant people. He's rebuking and sending a woe, like woe to you to an unrepentant city. Because the point in that though, is that if you are not meek and humbly needing a savior, you in fact will not be saved. That's the point. Say, like, no, I got this. Then go get it. Go get it. But, but don't, don't think that there's going to be any rescue. Don't think there's going to be any saving. So notice that Jesus's posture of being gentle and lowly is towards those who would come and say, hey, I've come to the end of myself. I have nothing to offer. Every time I try to go at this thing for myself or try to go at uh, other other objects of rest and comfort and value, they fail me, so here I am. I'm here to confess my inability. I'm here to confess my sin so that Jesus can throw his yoke on me and carry me along. Those are the kind of people that Jesus is saying he is gentle and lowly towards. And this is also, church, why we as followers of Jesus, if we are, and kingdom people should be characterized if if there's anything we should be characterized by, it's meekness and humility. That's the posture of a learner. Notice he's saying, learn from me. That's the word disciple. Come and be discipled by me. Come and be a learner. There's humility in that. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 5, we see that it is the meek who will inherit the earth. Not those who hustle and work for it and are rewarded at the end with what they did but it's the meek, it's the humble, it's the gentle, it's the approachable, it's the understanding, it's it's the non-triggered. It's those who know that they have nothing to offer other than the sin that required salvation to happen. So church, listen to me. When you're saved by grace alone, you cannot walk with a swag. You don't have any swagger left. When you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by the redemptive work of Christ alone, there's no swag left. You contribute nothing to the salvation that you receive except the sin that required it. That's this Jesus. That is the Jesus that invites us. And so it starts with that humble profession and confession of our inability. And then he is the one that makes us able because he is the God who is able. Here's what Dane Ortland says in his book, Gentle and Lowly about this. Go for it, Ben. Jesus is saying, that the yoke laid on his disciples is a non-yoke. So see the paradox. For it is a yoke of kindness. Who could resist this? <laughs> I just love that. It's just like, like, why would you resist this, right? It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver only to hear him shout back sputtering in the water. No way, not me. This is hard enough drowning here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is the added burden of a life preserver around my body. That's what we are all like. Confessing Christ with our lips, but generally avoiding deep fellowship with him out of a muted understanding of his heart. And he continues, lowly gentleness is not one way that Jesus occasionally acts towards sinners. Hear that church. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. And when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether Old Testament or new, it is not speaking of our emotional life only, but of the central animating center of all we do. It is what gets us out of bed in the morning. And it's what we daydream about as we drift off to sleep. It is the motivation headquarters of our life. The The heart in biblical terms is not part of who we are, but it's the center of who we are. Our heart is what defines and Directs us. It is Jesus's gentleness, his approachability. It's his posture with open arms that directs and guides everything else that he does because that's his very heart. And what's the promise if we respond to this invitation? Well, he says, I will give you rest. I will, right? So it's in him. It's not in what he can do. It's not, I'll do stuff to make you restful. It's not, I'll take away stuff that is making you restless. It's that I am the very one who gives rest. And this is really important. Because this is, again, kind of getting at, do we really have a faith that says I want God or do we just want his stuff? We just want like stuff he can do for us. And there's so much of this floating around in the ether of our Western thing where we have these churches and these doctrines of prosperity. And it's basically God's, like I gotta twist God's arm with prayer and faith. And then he's gonna just shower like candy out on me or whatever it is. This is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that rest is in him, regardless of what he does with the things that make us restless. That there's this, this all in, Approached. I gotta I, I trust you. I'm gonna throw my entire life at you and on you and walk with you because it's in you that I get rest, regardless of what's going on around me. And in the very next chapter, you can read this again, read the for, for a fuller context this week. But in the next chapter, just after this verse, Jesus goes on and talks about what that rest looks like, okay? And he goes on and he's actually rebuking the Pharisees. And if you know anything about the Pharisees, they were kind of like the self appointed watchdogs on everybody who isn't obeying the law of God like them, right? And in this context, they're the watchdogs on Jesus and his disciples because they're not nailing the Sabbath the way that they think you need to nail the Sabbath. And in Matthew 12, uh, verse two through eight, here's what it says. Um, At that time, Jesus went through the, the grain fields and his disciples were hungry. So they decided to eat. That's good. They were hungry. So they ate. And in verse two, but when the Pharisees saw, they said to him, Look, look what you are doing? Like, what are, your, what are your disciples doing? They're doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to them, have you not read? Now listen, when Jesus starts a sentence with the Pharisees with have you not read, that's Jesus for I'm about to diss you, okay? So don't, don't miss that, it's amazing. Because of course they've read it, that's, that's his point. They've read it, but they haven't understood it. That's the point. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or I'll give you another one. Have you not read in the law that you know so well, how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple actually profane the Sabbath and are rendered guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That's Jesus for. I'm God, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, meaning his disciples, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Woo! So those verses are fire. Those are like Jesus mic drop type verses. And what he's getting at here is he's saying, oh, you thought, you thought the law and the temple and doing all your sacrifices and following your Sabbath and tithing your mint and your, your cumin and your, your dill and doing all that. You th- oh, you thought that is what made you righteous. And Jesus shows up and he's like, I'm about to do away with the temple because I am the temple. It's like, what? Right? And so like, this is like straight up, I'm God. I'm literally the indwelt tabernacled presence of God on earth. That's who I am. And that's what he's saying here. And notice what he says about the Sabbath. So remember, he just invited his, his disciples to rest. They're walking through the field eating grain. The, the Pharisees, the watchdogs come and go, hey, you're disobeying the law. And then Jesus talks about Sabbath. Now here's what we'll do really quick drive by because the Sabbath goes way back before the law to creation itself. And if you remember anything about Genesis and kind of the ebb and flow of the creation narrative, we have a true story of origins and kind of the genetic code or the raw materials of everything that is. Human history, human purpose, identity, destiny, and who God is. That's the point of Genesis 1. So anything else we do with it, that's extra and fun, but that is the point of Genesis. And notice that in Genesis 1, in the beginning, what? There was stuff? No. In the beginning, God. Genesis starts with with God. In the beginning, God acted, God spoke, God assigned function, God created order. God took what was chaotic and he gave it order and made peace and beauty to all things because he himself is the purpose giving God. That's what creation does. Then what does he do? Watch Genesis 2. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed, it was done. What is he gonna do next? On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work and God blessed that seventh day. And he declared it holy, set apart, distinct. Something, there's something different going on on that day. Why? Because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. So just, just pause on how absurd this is. God Rested. Okay, so God rested. So some of us were like, I'm really busy, super important. I have many meetings, I have lots to do. I don't have time to rest. But God did, right? So like, like God rested. Uh, the, the non-sleeping, all-powerful, all-sufficient, all-knowing God rested. Now, why? And here's the point. Here's the principle that Jesus is pulling forward. Well, it wasn't because he was tired, that that that's that's it. I always loved like having conversations with you know non-believers and friends of mine and skeptics, and it's just like God rest. That's so silly, right? And it's like you, you don't understand what's even happening. You're silly, right? Right here, it's not because God was tired or he needed a break. He's actually pointing all of us who are tired and need a break, right? So we who all of us who are tired and restless. And pointing us to the fact that we will find rest in no one and nothing else other than the fully rested, fully in control, fully full of love, fully all powerful God. That's the point. And in the Genesis story, it emphasizes that God who is outside time and space, who is outside the created order that he put into place, he actually takes up residence within it. He takes up residence within the created order to make himself available and knowable and approachable. And here's what's interesting. We miss it. And we're gonna do probably a course or some type of like a lecture series on Genesis because this is my jam, right? This is where I hang out a lot with my my PhD work. But this is amazing because God actually rests after his work of creation to say, I've moved into the neighborhood and I'm here. That's what that's what happens. Whereas in the ancient Near East, every other creation myth, every other origin myth, gods built temples to say, "Hey, I've ruled over the the chaos and I've created things and I'm going to commemorate my rule." But God instead, he actually institutes Sabbath rest and he sanctifies time itself to say as a big sign, "I'm in control of everything." That 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 the the earth itself, that the cosmos itself is where God is gonna make himself available. He's gonna move into the neighborhood. And the whole creation story, we can miss it, but the whole creation story is actually mirroring the tabernacle story later and the building of the temple after that to show that this is God's presence in the cosmic temple of all creation. And that human beings are called as priests to go and steward and take care of everything he's created in this big cosmic temple. And the Sabbath is the cherry on top. He's inviting us into that rest. That to live with him as the cosmic temple ruler, the one in control and ruling all things is to actually come and receive rest. Now, Sabbath in the Hebrew, it just means stop, right? It means means cease from, stop. Stop doing what's normal. Stop doing what's ordinary. Stop working because that's ordinary, right? Stop working and do something that's not ordinary and special and that's the Sabbath. Stop working, stop Stop wanting, stop desiring, stop wishing, stop worrying, stop watching, stop texting, stop scrolling, stop consuming. That's what Sabbath does. But it also means delight. It's also a word that can mean delight in. And so when you take those two together, Sabbath rest, true Sabbath rest is an invitation to stop in order to delight. Stop delighting in things that are normal and take time to actually delight in what is extraordinary. And that's God himself. So don't just see Sabbath as a day um, or or just kind of like a thing that we're gonna do in community or as a a follower of Jesus. Instead, Sabbath is actually a posture. It's a way of being. It's a recalibration of our heart. It's a recalibration of delighting in the only true worthy object of worship, which which is God himself. And notice too, it's amazing when you read the creation there. Some of you already passed this in your, your annual Bible reading plans and some of you haven't started. So good time, repent, start, be good. Uh, the Jewish Sabbath actually starts not in the morning, but at night. So the Jewish day actually goes from sundown to sun up, right? And so, so the day starts at night and the week starts with Sabbath. And if you notice in Genesis 1, 1, there was evening right? In chapter one, sorry, there was evening and then there was morning. Not there was morning then evening, right? The first day there was evening then morning, okay? So your day, this is what's interesting, your day starts with you going to bed. Your day starts with you accomplishing nothing on your to-do list and laying down and drooling on your pillow and snoring all night while God sustains you and the whole cosmos. That's how your day starts, Right, So biblically, that is when your day starts. Your day starts with night and the week starts with rest. So every day starts with rest and every week starts with Sabbath. It's amazing. Like it's just amazing how we can miss this. But every day and every week starts with rest when we do it properly. Eugene Peterson said, it's as if God was teaching justification by grace through faith from page one of history. Not as if, he was. That's exactly what this is doing. God weaves this into the fabric of creation. He weaves it into the fabric of who we are as human beings, as image bearers to rest in him. So here's here's the thing. Here's the practical piece of this. To resist this, to ignore this, is to actually work against the grain of how God created us. We will short circuit eventually, right? Like we're just not even wired to do that, we will short circuit. So what this does, it's a humbling invitation to be reminded that we're not as self-sufficient and as self-made as we would pretend to be. A fun fact, I read this this week, the last time that a society tried to abandon the seven day week for a 10 day, that was during the French Revolution. Um, The French Revolution, by the way, went really poorly in pretty much every way anything could go. Uh, And one of the ways they decided to make it really poor was try to go from a seven-day work week to a 10-day. That sounds like fun. Uh, The result was what you expect. Uh, The economy crashed, like, quick. uh, Suicides skyrocketed. And productivity went way down. Like, not even close. Way down. So listen. People who don't make time and space for rest... We'll have it forced upon them later in life. They'll have it forced upon them in burnout. They'll have it forced upon them in illness. They'll have it forced upon them in death. And that's a scary prospect, knowing that that is actually the wages of us making the decision not to rest well. And in this season, we need to rest. We need to rest. We need to rest well. We need to Sabbath well. We need to understand that we're not at the controls. Uh, John Walton in his book, Lost World of Genesis, says that God is asking us in the Sabbath to recognize that he is at the controls and not us. When we rest on the Sabbath, we recognize him as the author and order and the one who brings rest and stability to our lives and world. We take our hands off the controls of our lives and acknowledge him as the one who is in control. See how that's an act of worship? it's actually saying like all week I try to control stuff, right? Like all week I try to control myself. I try to control other people. I try to use my words and, and my, my, my arguments and my, my skills and my talents. I try to use all this stuff to, to control the environment around me and to control other people. And Sabbath is actually an act of worship where we've, we take our hands off actively, off of the controls. And for 24 hours, we don't control anything, but instead we acknowledge the fact that we need to rest in the one who is in control of everything. And that's just Genesis. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. And a little bit later, and then we'll move on and how we can apply this. But a little bit later in, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, um, scripture does a lot of things with the Sabbath, but fast forward a little bit. God doesn't just say like, hey, rest is for you. And it's about me. Here it is, it's a gift. He actually commands it, right? So he ups the ante a little bit and then commands rest. So he actually commands it. So in Exodus 20, with the listing of the 10 commandments, The Sabbath is actually the fourth commandment. um, And it's the only one that gets an explanation. If you notice, actually the longest of of the commandments. And the reason why I think it's the fourth commandment is because it's how we actually practice the first three commandments. You with me on that? You tracking, right? The first three of have no other gods before me. Don't go after idols because they won't won't do what you think they will. And don't misuse or misunderstand my name. Those three are practiced in the fourth command of Sabbath. And it's the only one that gets an explanation. And the explanation that it gets rooted in is creation. In Exodus, it says, like, hey, remember, God created, he worked for six days, then he rested. So obey the Sabbath. That's what he does, okay? That's the explanation here. But later in Deuteronomy 5, this is fascinating. Later in Deuteronomy 5, when the 10 commandments are listed, again, it says not remember the Sabbath like it did in Exodus. It says, obey the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath. And here's why. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand. Therefore, keep the Sabbath day. Notice this subtle shift from Exodus to Deuteronomy where the Sabbath is not rooted in creation anymore. It's actually rooted in redemption. It's rooted in the Exodus story, not the creation story. It means that you are free from the demands of slavery, that you are are free, so live free, that God with a mighty hand has released us from all things that would enslave us, therefore, practice the Sabbath. That is an amazing connection because you know who doesn't rest and can't? Slaves. And if you and I are a slave to anything, we will not rest. That's the invitation of the Sabbath. As slaves to sin, Listen, you and I have been resisting true rest since the garden. It's the condition of your heart and mine. The first sin of our first parents wasn't just an act of rebellion morally against God. It was a tragic exchange of them looking for rest in anything but God. Notice the promise of the serpent in Genesis was, be like God. Be the limitless, all-sufficient, determiner, of what is good and right and true for you. That was the promise of sin. That's the slavery of sin. And Sabbath is the invitation to turn away from that and come and rest in our identity and who God is. So church, Sabbath is an act of worship. It is about slowing. It is about resting. But more, than, more importantly, hear me on this, we're gonna hear anything. It is, an, it is God's way, loving, loving way of dethroning us. Sabbath rest is God's way of dethroning us. It's inviting us to step down from the throne of our life and to actually trust him because he's in control. You see, whereas sin dethrones God and enthrones self, Sabbath rest comes and turns it right up in its head and it actually rethrones God and puts him in his rightful place. And by putting God in his rightful place and understanding who God is, guess what happens? Well, we understand our rightful place and we, we understand who we are. That's it. John Calvin in the beginning of his institutes, he says that there are two, two things that we need more than anything that, that, that structure the rest of our life. And that's knowledge of who God is and knowledge of self. And first, we need knowledge of God before we understand knowledge of self. That we're, we're mere mortals. <laughs> we're mere mortals who need rest. We don't have endless energy. We're not limitless. We're not all sufficient. We're not all knowing. And praise God that we're not. And this week, it was crazy. I, I saw that even like, I went on these rabbit trails, these rabbit trails that take me hours of my week and then turn into a sentence for you, uh, you're welcome. But I, I, went, I went through the theology of sleep and I went through church history of any theologians that have talked about sleep, uh, like biblically. Um, and, and what's crazy is that sleep, again, the thing that you're gonna do every day to start your day now, right? You're gonna not think about it at night. You're gonna be like, oh, starting my day with sleep. That's the best. Some of you who love sleep, that should be like the biggest act of worship for you now, right? It's like, I'm not just gonna, at the end of my day, go to bed. It's that you're actually gonna be like, I'm starting my day by going to bed. Oh, I love Jesus. He's so good, right? But here's the thing. Sleep is a daily reminder that we have limits. Like that they're actually built into us. Try to go without sleep. Like without, if, if I get less than six hours of sleep, I am an absolute nightmare. Imagine trying to go like a week without sleep. You literally will die, right? You will not survive. But here's what's crazy. God never slumbers nor sleeps, but we sure do, right? We sure need to. And even sleep in our daily rhythm of rest reminds us that we're not limitless. Uh, Tish Warren Harrison, uh, in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, it's not up there. I'll just read it. says this about, about all this. Uh, we are unable to defend ourselves while we're sleeping. We're unable to keep ourselves safe or to master the world around us. Sleep exposes reality that we are frail and weak. Our powerful need for sleep is a reminder that we truly are finite. That's amazing. That's amazing that you and I could go lay down tonight at the beginning of our day and actually understand that in the frailty of my sleep, that can be an act of worship. And not to be, again, this is not to be morbid, but biblically, often sleep and death are connected, right? And theologians over the centuries have connected uh, sleep and death because it's a reminder of our mortality. And scripture uses them, sleep and death, often interchangeably, right? Psalm three, verse five, I lay down and sleep and I wake only because the Lord sustains me, right? Not Not to be morbid again, but in a real sense, sleep is a daily reminder that one day your eyes will close and they will not open again. Every morning, every day starts with Sabbath rest because we opened our eyes. Because we opened our eyes and we were recipients of life. So now with that in mind, think about some of these verses that we know, but we just haven't had that as the backdrop. Psalm 143, eight. Let me hear of your steadfast love in the morning for I trust in you. See that? It's like an act of, it's a gift. I open my eyes in the morning and I can actually say, wow, what an act of grace. What evidence of grace that I just woke up again and opened my eyes. Uh, Psalm 5.3, in the morning you hear my voice and in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. I love that. And last and probably most well-known, Lamentations 3.22, your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Isn't that amazing? that even in the forced rhythm and habit of sleep, that we're invited to begin every single day with a posture of gratitude and humble meekness. Amazing. So that was a rabbit trail for free. You're welcome. Here's what we'll do. Few things to apply some of this practically, and then we're done. Here's a few things. Number one, Sabbath rest is commanded. It's commanded. God has commanded us to rest. So here's my, my, my suggestion. Make it a weekly non-negotiable. Set a time, set a day to actually have, I'm talking 24 hours, okay? Not 15 minutes of like, I did my Devo, I journaled, I drank coffee, I posted it on Instagram, great is thy faithfulness. But I'm talking 24 hours of actually setting things that are normal aside, And I can't tell you what it's going to look like for you, but 24 hours of whatever it is, turning off, putting away your devices, picking a room in your house where you're not going to have technology or screens and protecting time to rest. Because hear me, not all relaxing activities are restful. You with me on that? Just because you're relaxing doesn't mean you're resting. Four hours of Netflix, that can be relaxing, but it's not restful. In fact, it probably leads to more restlessness because you, you literally drag yourself off the couch and feel like a slob, right? You know, four hours of video games, amazingly relaxing, not super restful, right? A doubleheader hockey game, uh, go Habs. Um, super relaxing, not necessarily restful, right? Scrolling through your socials, okay? Relaxing, can be relaxing, good thing, can be good, but certainly not restful. Okay, so understand not just because something's relaxing doesn't make it restful. And I think in this season, we don't need to just relax. We don't need to just sit back and let this month just just disappear into the black hole of nothing. We actually need to rest. And so understand that Sabbath rest doesn't mean being passive from everything, but it does mean actually being active, focusing on the most important thing. That's what a full Sabbath, that's what truly stopping and, and resting and delighting and getting a tune-up, right? right? Just getting a tune-up and a rewiring of our hearts and our, our minds and our eyes and our body, that Sabbath rest. So I don't know what it looks like for you. I don't know what that looks like practically. It could be gardening uh, in the winter. Try it. it, you might be able to do it. If you do it, tell us, that'd be great. Uh, walking, journaling, reading, a cup of coffee, a cup of fermented fruit, Uh, or fermenting grain, uh, singing, board games, whatever it is, right? Like there's gotta be something that again, you can actively put it aside. Now as a family, for the last year and a half, we've practiced family night. Uh, We call it family night because family Sabbath sounds lame for our kids. So, but what we do is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Sometimes it gets interrupted, of course, that's life. But we take 24 hours where we put our devices on Do Not Disturb and we do analog activities as a family. We cook together, we dance, we celebrate. You should see the dance parties. They're amazing. Uh, We play Uno, we play board games. We do analog, tangible things together because we know that the rest of our week is gonna involve a lot of this a lot of digitization of myself, right? And so what we do is we make sure that we make time for prioritizing analog activities, non-digital things to again come in and rest. Second, this takes practice. So we started there and I'm rounding back to the beginning. Sabbath rest takes practice. And listen, if there's one thing I've seen in myself, I'm having such a hard time actually focusing deeply and resting truly because of all of the endless distractions. Restlessness, I think, is our default, I really do. It's one of the conditions of our heart that restlessness is default. Resting is hard for us because it does require us to slow down in a fast-paced culture and be still in a busy culture. And I think that's exactly why it's difficult because we are addicted to that fast pace. We're addicted to the constant noise. We're addicted to the productivity, right? We're just gonna be productive, that's where my values found, right? Hebrews 4.11 says, make every effort to enter into that rest. I just love how paradoxical that is again. Just these tensions of like, wait, effort is opposed to rest for me. I like to not make effort, right? That just might be that you're lazy, right? And this actually takes effort, that I'm going to make an effort to rest well. Because it does take work. It does take practice. It does take making it a habit. It does take prioritizing it. But church, it is so worth it. It'll so, I'm telling you, watch what it does to you. Watch what it does to your heart. Watch what it does to your family. Watch what it does to your interaction with other people. It's just amazing how it just reverberates out from us prioritizing this simple thing that God commanded. Who would have thought, right? God commands something and it's good for us. Amen. Third and second to last, Sabbath rest is for us. It's for us, but it's not about us. Sabbath rest is for us, but it's not about us. This is really important. Uh, In Mark 2, in the same passage where Mark records this same interaction that Jesus has with these Pharisees, Jesus finishes it and says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the Sabbath is actually a gift for us, but it's not about us. Why? Because in the Old Testament we read, Sabbath is unto the Lord, right? So it's actually special time extraordinary time and focus devoted to the Lord. So again, it's not just relaxation. It's not just kind of like uh, gorging ourselves on hours of vegetated relaxation. Why? Well, because it's holy to the Lord. It's actually time that's set apart for the Lord. It's for us to enjoy as a gift, but it's about him because he's given it to us in the first place, okay? So when you start to think through how can you practice this, it's not just a day off. Okay, that's what we've done is our, our Western culture. It's kind of like our day off, that's our Sabbath. It's like, well, it can be if we make it our Sabbath, but not necessarily. You gotta be careful because a day off is dedicated to you, right? Or other people who need you to help them move or other, right? All the tasks that still pile up on our day off. And then we end up doing lots of things like installing kitchen doors, right? And that, that's it, that's it. So like a day off is dedicated to you. It's not necessarily set apart for the Lord. Okay, so what does that look like for you? I don't know. But what does it look like to take a full 24-hour period to to Sabbath, to to stop, to cease from what's normal, to rest, to actively surrender control and intentionally focus on God being fully in control? A day, a full day in your week to take Jesus up on his invitation to come and and take his yoke and rest and follow him into that. And fourth and finally, Sabbath rest is a communal act. It is a communal act of resistance, okay? Now that sounds very Star Wars-y, but let me unpack it. Notice that every time the Sabbath is spoken of, it's actually plural, okay? And I know in our individualism and our self kind of focused culture, every time you see the word you in your Bible, Y-O-U, you think me, right? 98% of the time, sorry to break it to you, it's not you singular at all in the Greek or the Hebrew. It's plural. It's actually a a collective corporate activity. And Sabbath rest is a communal, it's always spoken about in plural. It's a communal act of resistance. And so we have to be careful not to just think of Sabbath rest as an individualistic self-care moment, okay? Hey, listen, self-care, personally disconnecting and decompressing, those are very important. We need to do those. But self care is not this kind of Sabbath in community that we see biblically. Biblically, Sabbath rest is actually done in participation in community with community. So here's my question What if the church in our city, what if our church actually lived as a countercultural community of well rested people? What if that was our general disposition? What if our posture was that we were a well-rested people because we're following after our well-rested Jesus? What if we actually carried each other in that? And when some of us are burning out and some of us aren't restful and some of us are restless, what would it look like as a community to actually carry one another and bear one another's burdens? What would that say about our God? What would that actually say to a culture who is so exhausted, so anxious, so burnt out that we are a well-rested people? Walter Brueggemann, in his Old Testament commentary, just listen, he said that the celebration of Sabbath is an act of resistance and alternative. It is resistance because it's a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by production and consumption of commodity goods. That is so true of today. That if we are actually a well-rested people, that says so much about our fully in control, all-sufficient, life-giving, well-rested God. And as St. Augustine, the Archbishop in North Africa and church father famously said it, to God that you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until what? It finds its rest in you. So church today, right now, let's respond to Jesus's invitation, that he is Lord of the Sabbath, that he gave has given it to us as a gift, but that it is about him. And he promise us, promises us nothing less than true rest. If we actually respond to that invitation, come take his easy yoke upon us and then walk with him and learn from him. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, you have such an amazing posture. And it's so hard sometimes to just imagine and think about what you're like. And some of us have just images of fathers that are not like you at all. And I just thank you, Father, that you have sent your son, Jesus, that you saw it fit to come and dwell and tabernacle among us to save us and rescue us. And Holy Spirit, I pray that this morning you would apply your word to our heart that our, our heart would just leap and scream for more adoration and gratitude for Jesus Christ, that you would apply it fresh to us, that you would fill us fresh with it. And that Lord, you, you call your church the temple, that, that you fill the temple and that we collectively are full of your spirit. And I pray that you would fill us again especially in this season of increased anxiety, of increased restlessness, of increased frustration, that Jesus, we would respond day in and day out, week in and week out to your invitation to come to you and receive the rest that is only in you. We ask that this morning. And even now, as we, as we log off, as we go our way, as we go and, and, and go into either family worship or private worship and meditation, that Jesus, you would meet us there as we respond to your invitation and that we would find rest. We love you. We need you. We ask these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.